episode 112 of the Natural Hattrick Podcast. Natty Hattie. That's Craig Morgan. Jamie Eisner. Oh, good. Jamie's I'm here. I'm back. Yeah. How much did you miss me, Luke? <laughs> so On a scale of 1 to 10, what, what was that, like a 2 or 3? Uh, that's being generous. I'm Luke Lipinski. We're here doing a preview. One team today. Although we're going to hit some news and notes first. But the Arizona Coyotes. We only have seven teams left to preview. We've gotten through 24 of the now 31 teams in the NHL. It's such a big deal today that Jamie Eisner is back from his trip to Alaska. Good for him. Jamie, how was it? It was great. Uh, okay. I, I, as Craig Morgan and I were talking about at the start of the show, I picked up a, a third wife. Luke wow. didn't even know about the second one. Luke didn't know. No. no. And now it's out there for everyone. Although I'll, I'll make sure you get you're on my mailing list for invitations so you can at least bring a gift. You don't have to show up. Actually, I prefer if you didn't. Just mail Just, just mail the gift. All right. Well, I'm going to pick my own it's gift then. It's J-A-I-M-E. I'm, you're gonna make me continue this, aren't you? This is, this is the part we're supposed to jump back in. No, I'm, I'm enjoying Jamie spelling his own name. This is great. This is very compelling. I might add that he paused. Well, yeah, you looked confused. I, I was waiting for you to jump in, I'm and then so it just next. didn't happen. And then I had to continue. And so, I was like, yeah. sometimes silence is golden, and that was one of those times. Yeah, I've heard that before. All right, so we're gonna get into the uh, Coyotes here in a second, but a couple newsworthy items. First of all, training camp has begun since the uh, the last time yay. we talked. Uh, preseason has begun for some teams. Not so yay. And uh, why, Craig hates preseason. Why don't we just get all into sports. this with you? It's not just hockey. It's yeah, all sports. Don't you think preseason, preseason hockey is a little bit different? No. Okay. Well, I tried. Jamie, thoughts? Cool. Okay. So the uh, first it's like game. I never left. Never on, came back. I don't know which one it would be. Was on Saturday. I think we should go through the scoring in each game. But uh, how about Vegas scoring nine goals? Probably the most they will score for the first five years of their franchise history. Hmm. Preseason. I didn't know they scored nine goals because I didn't pay attention. Care to guess who they're playing? Who do you think they would score nine goals on? In the preseason? Oh, boy. <laughs> Jamie, care to guess who they were playing? I don't know. Vancouver. Uh, okay. Oh, uh, Was that uh, like a setup? We were supposed to guess that? I yeah. just, if you don't have a, any clue, just guess Vancouver. Who would give up nine goals in a game to a team with 11 defensemen? Oh, I know. Vancouver would. And they did. So preseason has started. Training camp has started. Uh, there was supposed to be a preseason game here tonight. That's not going to happen. But, uh. We'll get into the Coyotes, like I said, a little bit deeper here in a second. There was a trade, though. We have a trade to announce. There was a steal. Yes. Let's just call it what it is. That seemed lopsided. I'm always hesitant to say that when, you know, it's not two arbitrary teams making a trade. This wasn't Florida and Carolina where I have no connection or, you know, emotional ties to either of the teams. But it sure seems like Florida gave up a lot more than they should have for Jamie McGinn. You think? Yes, I do. If and the Coyotes, I think when the Coyotes went into off season, the offseason, getting Jamie McGinn off the roster probably would have been near the top of their list. And they managed to do that. Not only did they do it, they got a top four defenseman in return. And, oh, by the way, the Panthers retained some of his salary. Yeah, I, I don't know what Florida was looking for specifically with Jamie McGinn. I don't know what they believe he is going to add to that team that was worth giving up Demers. But from the Coyotes' perspective... You're now, you add a right-handed defenseman. You add another player to your blue line that's now look, shaping up to be a, a pretty darn good blue line. And again, right now with, with Chitron about to miss a little bit of time, you, you have the space to add another guy. I, I don't see any downside for the Coyotes. I don't quite understand what Florida is thinking here, but you know, you it's not get, the first time we've they, said those words. They do have some younger players that they want to give an opportunity to, so I, I guess I understand it from that point. But we, you know, we, this isn't the first time we've heard that the Panthers may be shaving some payroll. So this may be, have been another move in that direction. But it just, if you're going to move him, 
move him for something more. I mean, you, you should probably should ask for something more from the Coyotes than, than just Jamie McGinn, who, by the way, I talked to the day before the trade because I was planning a story for our site, which may still see the light of day if you're interested in the Florida Panthers feature, Jamie. <laughs> you're staring at me blankly. <laughs> no, that's me staring at you blankly. Yes. Craig's but forgotten who is who now. He's dropped something like eight pounds. He said it depends on the day. But changed his diet, changed his workout habits, really looked slimmed down, much, much better fit, and maybe a guy that could have slotted into this lineup a little better. He still felt felt like a wrong fit for me. And with, with the pace that Rick Tockett wants to play at, he really felt like a bad fit because he's a guy that's been affected from the hash marks down. Did he um did he go on the same Burger King diet that you're on to lose those eight wow, pounds? There it is. Or no. There it is, you know? Well you already texted I, I tell you these things in confidence. our guests and told her that we're running late because of me, which is fairly untrue. But uh, we should mention uh, what I guess is, no, it's one hundred percent is going to be today. I, I would, I would say Fairly true. true, yeah. Yeah. Sarah McClellan of AZ Central will come on and talk Coyotes with us. Mm-hmm. So we'll have four of us talking Coyotes. Get ready for that. So just one last note on this trade. We'll get into it with her. But with the defense now, and Jamie sort of alluded to it there. You don't have Jacob Chicken right now, so it's it's a bit of a weakness. But I mean, Jason Demers is a well-established top four defenseman. When Chicken comes back, it's a pretty good defense. Not just like, oh, it's pretty good, they're the local team, and look, they're on the way up. Like That's a legitimately, if your top pairing works out where it's Oliver Ekman-Larsen and Nicholas Jalmerson, that could potentially be one of the best top pairings in all of hockey. And we'll talk about that more later. All right. Just giving away all these things. Right? Oh, yeah, I know. Wow. It's, it's called a teaser, Luke. I thought you did radio. That, that was the, the Coyotes tease. podcast is today. I just will want to reestablish that. This is it. Okay. This is part of the podcast experience. And when you're in just an endless supply of content well, look, like David I am. next time. Okay, fine. So David Pasternak signs with Boston, not the Coyotes, even though this is the Coyotes podcast. I, I thought that was a little bit less than he was going to get, to be honest. We all thought he was going to get a Leon Dreisaitl deal, didn't we? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that was the talk for a while, and you figured that he had set the market. So, yeah, they, they did, probably did a good job of negotiations here because Leon Dreisaitl probably shouldn't have signed a Leon Dreisaitl deal. Yeah, Jamie missed it last week when I pointed out that the Dreisaitl deal was Peter Chiarelli's one last chance at screwing the Boston Bruins <laughs> over, and he almost did it. I mean, we didn't think he would, Pasternak was going to get $8.5 million a year because he's not a center, but I thought he'd get more than $6.6 million a year. I figured, I figured at the very least we'd see 7 maybe seven five, especially because the Bruins don't have a Connor McDavid that they're already paying $12.5 million to, but uh, he gets, what, six point six a year for six seasons, so... Probably a pretty good deal for a guy that just scored 34 goals and had 70 points. Yeah, I I also think it's a deal that Boston might end up regretting a little bit. That's a lot of money to pay to a wing. That I don't know. I I, we all thought he was going to be worth more than the the initial the 6.6 per year that was kind of offered out there. But boy, that's a lot of money to tie up in in a winger. It is, but when you look at their situation too, I I guess if 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 you're the agent and you're you're using comparables and you're even looking at the team's salary structure, you might point out that. David Backus is making $6 million a year for the next four years. And so you're telling me that I'm worth the same money to you as David Backus? Is that is that what we're saying here? Well, he's worth more than Brad Marchand, who's apparently making just about the same as David well, Backus. Brad Marchand doesn't care whatever David Pasternak's going to make. Oh, okay. He made that very clear. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Yeah, he'll, it'll have no bearing on anything ever. How about that? Uh, well, it'll have some bearing on their salary cap structure. <laughs> how about that top line, though? If you talk about the Coyotes having a great top defensive pairing, how about Brad Marchand, David Pasternak, and Patrice Bergeron as the top line in Boston? Now, they don't really have – they need to fill out their second, third, and fourth lines, but that, that. that first line's one of the With best. a guy like, say, Tyler Sagan? 
Yeah, it would be nice. <laughs> it would be a pretty good uh, setup. He looked good in a Bruins jersey. He actually did. He's just baiting Jamie. Yeah, he actually just didn't look good the second day he wore the allegedly wore the same clothes to the to the, the locker room. So he couldn't play hockey anymore at that point. I think, it. I think it was Similar the same. narrative seems to follow every Boston player out of town, doesn't it? In every sport. Yeah, not just the Bruins. It happens with the Red Sox too. Not so much the Patriots, I guess. Was it just because he wore the same Bruins jersey two days in a row, or was it the actual clothing? Is that what got him in trouble? I don't know. I think just. Uh, a criminally low shooting percentage that wasn't sustainable, and they went, nope, there's there's no way this young kid is going to bounce back from that. Oops. After one year, yeah. after they won the Stanley Cup with them. Anyway, Joffrey Lupul. I don't even know how to attack this story. He's attacking the Maple Leafs. How's that? And here's Craig Morgan with more. Oh, see. See what he does there? Yeah, yeah. I threw it to you. Like the local news? That's it, right. It's a really weird story. So this is via social media, right? Where he's... Yeah, it was Instagram, wasn't it? He had an Instagram yes. post that he then later deleted. Yeah. Like the internet's not going to see. You might as well. You might as well. the fan he's ready and just awaiting the call, and then it just spiraled down from there because somebody pointed out that he failed his physical, and he responded, "Ha ha, failed physical?" Question mark. They cheat. Everyone lets them. Rut row. <laughs> he's accusing the Maple Leafs of using long-term injured reserve illegally. Which, if I'm a reporter and I hear that from a player, I, I at least look into that at this point. Just to be clear, Joffrey Lupul did not write Rut Row. That was Craig's own uh, sort of... Sorry, I forgot to put the closing quote, quotation marks on to let yeah. you know where he stopped speaking and that, I started. That was your interpretation of it in, in the sort of a Scooby-Doo world that you live in. But uh, Joffrey Lupul, it, when it's a player on the team making the accusation, that's... Yeah, you're right. Somebody probably should look into this. And oh, by the way, it's Toronto, so like 50 reporters are probably going to look into it. Yeah, it's one of those things where that's what the Players Association is there for. If he really truly believes that he is being wronged and he's being used on long-term injured reserve uh, illegally, that's what the union is there to fight for him for. Is this... I don't know how you would ever really prove that. I mean, I guess you could just give him a physical and make the... have somebody neutral give him a physical and make the results public if he was willing to do that? Mm, Possibly. That would really help his prospects of playing with the Leafs, although right now, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's pretty clear he's not going to be there for a while. Yeah, I know that's going to be awkward. Forever. <laughs> but what about these other instances he's talking about? What do you what do you do with those? If you're the PA, first of all, you're you're making a call to him immediately saying, who else are you talking about? Jared Cowan, for, for instance, would be another example. Who are you talking about? And then you pursue it with those players and find out if there's actually fire where he's created smoke. Yeah, right. Yeah, sense. and then you have yeah. to, and then you have to find out whether can it be proved. I mean, I think there's a mm-hmm. there's a thought that a lot of people have across all sports that, oh well, you know, was this pitcher that goes on the ten day DL really hurt, or was he on the ten day DL because he just got lit up for six runs in the first inning and they want to skip his next start? We don't know, and so I mean that's one of those things that's very difficult to prove. I'm sure if everything was copacetic between Lupul and the Leafs, uh, there would this issue wouldn't have come up. But because it's not, these things tend to crop up a little bit. And, and he has an opportunity if he thinks he's truly wronged to go to the union and try to fight for his case. But uh, right now we have no indication that he's looking to do that. I mean, you, you bring Jared Cowan into the story too because he he called what the Maple Leafs a joke of a process when he was bought out by them. And that wasn't that long ago. That was just last week. And, and I mean, if you want to get a guy that's angry and willing to talk, he's in Colorado Avalanche camp right now. So he's probably about as angry as it gets if you're still <laughs> trying to play organized hockey. He's got hockey. nothing to lose. Yeah, he's got nothing but time in Colorado. Uh 
I wonder how, I'm not saying they're doing this, but I do wonder how common this is across the sports when you hear Jamie bring up, it does seem like a lot of times when a pitcher's having a, a few bad starts, but they don't want to send them down or whatever, but they don't want to, they at least want to skip a turn in the rotation. All of a sudden he mysteriously has an injury. And I just, I've always kind of thought this is probably a little more common than we think. You oh. just don't usually hear a player calling the organization out. No, because the player has something to lose in a lot of those instances too, right? But yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you that this probably happens across the league more than we know. Yeah, Or sometimes we do know. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> All I wanted was for Craig to agree with me, so I'm going to go home. That was, this was a fun show, guys. Okay. We're going to have us. Uh, good seeing you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Jamie, how'd you feel about seeing me? Eh, I'll take it or leave it. That's better than I could ever ask for from Jamie. All right. Up next, we're going to talk to Sarah McClellan of the Arizona Republic and get her thoughts, as well as all of our thoughts, on the Arizona Coyotes, whose season is about two and a half weeks away from beginning. All right, we continue our summer preview series with a look at the Arizona Coyotes, joined now by Sarah McClellan of the Arizona Republic to take a look at the uh, the local team for us. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you guys? We're good. We were just going through the uh, the trade that the Coyotes made yesterday, and then Craig told us that we couldn't keep talking about it because we had to wait for you. So what are your thoughts on the deal that the Coyotes made with the Florida Panthers yesterday? Well, I think it just fills out their top four and, you know, just kind of slots everybody in place. And I think that gives them a very competitive top four defense now. Um, you know, you look at the top pairing now with Oliver ekman Larson and Nicholas Dromerson. I think that's you know, probably a, a pretty formidable duo, um, a nice mix of that offensive puck-moving awareness with obviously a very reputable stay-at-home defenseman who can block a lot of shots but also sounds like he wants to explore the other side of his game and be active in a style that's really going to expect defensemen to um, not only get up in the attack but, you know, generate those types of plays. Um, and then a second pairing that could really look like Alex Bologoski and Jason Demers, who, you know, I think comes in as someone who can obviously play a lot of minutes, handle some penalty kill, maybe get a look on, on the power play. I, I know Coach Rick Tockett doesn't want to flood that unit probably with a lot of left shots. He'd like some right-handed looks. So, um, you know, there's a lot of impressive defenses, especially in the Western Conference and the Pacific Division, and we'll see how it translates, you know, beginning in October. But I think on paper right now, that four looks pretty competitive, and it, and it you know, gives this team a chance to, to be better on the blue line, which obviously struggled last season to keep pucks out of the net and, you know, keep shots from getting in, you know, to their side of the ice. Sarah, I was trying to ask this question of Dave Vest earlier at practice, but he wanted nothing to do with me today, apparently. So I'll, I'll ask you instead. When you look around the Western Conference, since you just brought this up, at the top blue lines, I, I think we would all probably agree Nashville, Calgary, maybe Anaheim, they're all in that mix. Where do you think this group of defensemen ranks now in the Western Conference? Yeah, I think there's some pretty impressive blue lines out there. You know, Minnesota, I don't think changed too much as well. Um, Edmonton's probably up and coming. I mean, it was a playoff team, so I think you look at all the playoff teams who had sturdy enough units to be able to advance, you know, to the postseason, it's tough. And, I mean, that's not even including, you know, what's going on in Chicago because even though that went, you know, that unit had a makeover, that's still, a, you know, a very competitive playoff contending type team. And a lot of that does stem from what they do in their own end. So um, it's still, a, yeah, very competitive. But 
you know, this gives them a chance, I think, to try to compete with those teams in their own end. And I really do think with the style change that this organization is trying to implement, as much as so much is about getting up in the play and breaking out and generating offense by having the puck more and just being at the opposition's end, it really is going to be, you know, imperative for that back end to not only force the turnovers and get the puck back and be able to transition out, but it's probably going to have to be pretty airtight because with such a maybe, you know, offensive, fast-paced offense, you you are going to be vulnerable at times. Mistakes are going to happen, and you are going to give up odd man rushes. So as much as the focus is on the offense and the style that they want to play to try to maximize some of the skill sets up front, uh, defense is going to be critical and crucial for this team. And so um, how that stacks up against everyone else, it, you know, might it might come down to how these offenses stack up to everybody else when you really look at the whole picture. But I think, you know, it, it st- starts to level the playing field a little bit. Our, you know, there are some pretty impressive defenses in the West, and we just rattled them off. Um, but this four, I think, just legitimizes the chance that they have an opportunity now to compete a little bit more probably than they did a year ago. Kind of sticking with the blue line theme, Oliver ekman Larson's obviously the crown jewel of the pieces back there. How do you think with more depth on the team and with Tockett involved, what do you think his season's going to look like this year? What are the expectations for him as that franchise defenseman? Yeah, I think he's definitely in position and prime to have Uh, a huge bounce back season. I think that's probably what he's expecting of himself and what the team is expecting. Um, You know, I I think what will really help Oliver is if this style takes off, if everybody is able to kind of get on the same page and transition the puck like they have, I think it totally plays to his strengths. And not that he's, you know, can't defend, but I think you really see the upside of his style when he doesn't have to defend, when he can you know, really transition the play and get up in the offensive zone and try to create that way. I think he's one of those players who's a really good defender because he doesn't have to defend all the time. And, you know, that's not a knock on his play in his own end because arguably he can be, you know, maybe one of their better presences in their own end because of his vision and his quickness and his ability to just kind of, you know, hover around and forecast where the play's going to go. But he really does set the tone. And it'll be interesting to see how he responds having and being, you know, alongside a very legit now number one pairing with Nicholas Jalmerson. They have some familiarity playing together before, um, so that should maybe, you know, work seamlessly as they try to get more familiar with each other. But I really do think a lot of this does run through him and how effective he can be. And, you know, after everything that he went through last season with adversity on and off the ice, I think he is very much in position to rebound and have a season that is very reminiscent of this superstar caliber defenseman that the league has, you know, started more and more to recognize him as. Sarah, there was so many rookies in and out of the lineup last season, and now this year it really seems like we're looking at three main guys that might be able to to break in, whether it's right out of camp or over the course of the season. But what are your thoughts on on the potential impacts of Clayton Keller, Dylan Strome, and Christian Fisher? Well, I definitely think they're going to have opportunity to, to, to try to come in and, and make their mark. Um, you know, some of that is just roster and looking at who's available and spots that are open and positions that they play. But, you know, I, I think the fact that a player like Fisher has some experience from last season will really help him, um, especially, you know, just the style that he has, I think, as a tenacious um, kind of gritty, isn't afraid to kind of go into the corners and muck it up. I think that's a, that's 
you know, a skill set that will probably translate well into this style, especially, you know, there's speed and skill and you need that. You need to be able to hold on to the puck and make plays, but to add a little muscle behind that, I think that's probably an attribute that really will, will play well in this style. Um, I'm interested to see how, how Keller builds off the little preview he got last season at the end of the year coming in for a few games. Uh, playing right wing will be interesting. Um, you know, playing on your off wing, you do get some different looks. Um, but it, it, it can be a challenge, though, too. But he seems to be comfortable at it so far. Um, Patrick Kane does it. And I know that's a player he likes to model himself after. Um, he thinks that he has that potential to be that type of impact player like a Kane or a Johnny Goudreau. So we'll see how that translates. But I, I think he's coming in very confident. And I don't think it's cockiness i think he's confident and i think that'll help us too you know just knowing you can be here and that you can make a difference and help i think is probably half the battle for these young players and so um he comes in i think feeling like he can fit in and feeling like he can help this process so that's key and obviously strom had it had you know had some time last season as well and kind of got his feet wet and you know just looked like he wasn't ready yet to be that everyday player We'll see if he's made the strides to be an everyday player this season. Now he does have the option, obviously, to go back down to the minors, get some seasoning there in the pro game. But um, where this center depth chart is at now, I, I, I think, you know, giving him a chance to start, it makes sense surrounding him with players that maybe are of a similar style, speedy, um, like to be crafty with the puck. It probably gives him a chance to just, have the best opportunity to try to get the ball rolling, get a good rhythm. Uh, he didn't start, if you'll remember, he didn't start the beginning of last season. He was a healthy scratch, and I think that stuck out to him that, you know, he made the team, but he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, in that initial lineup. So if he gets that opportunity this season, I think it'll be really interesting to see if he can get off to a quick start because I, I think confidence is contagious, and if you get on a roll, he could probably get on a nice run that could help him feel like he can make a difference and contribute and you know play to his strengths in a lineup that is really I think gonna you know probably need contributions from these players um since if you look at just track records and who's been in the league there aren't a lot of proven you know goal scorers there's there's players who have flashed and who have potential and who have done it for a season or two but legit proven goal scorers is something this team starts to, you know, need to um, develop. And, you know, there's a lot of young players who have that opportunity to start, you know, developing in that vein for the Coyotes. We have talked about a couple of these changes already, but I, I want to back up for a moment to the insane summer that this franchise had. And, well, it's still going, obviously, with this latest trade, but partially because I want to commiserate with you, Sarah. What was your summer like trying to cover the Coyotes while you were trying to do other things? <laughs> I know what mine looked like. <laughs> I just remember that week in June, that Monday, you know, Saturday, I guess it started with the Mike Smith trade. And then the Monday, June 18th, I believe, when the Shane Joan news came out. And then by Thursday night, Dave Tippett um, had announced that he wasn't coming back and had mutually parted with the team. And then Friday there was, the Jolison trade and the Derek Stepan and Antti Ranta trade. And I just, I, I don't think I've covered a week like that in my career. I just kept thinking like, there's just so much change. What's next? What, what else is going to 
to change the summer. It was such a monumental week. I think it'll go down in the history. It's probably the busiest week in franchise history. Um, it was a lot to process. And I, I think, you know, as it was coming, I was just trying to understand as much as possible and try to figure out what it meant, what was going on. And I don't think it sunk in until, you know, maybe a week later or after kind of the dust settled that, wow, this is completely different and a lot has changed and it's never going to be the same. It's not going to be how it was. And so, um, you know, it, I, I've been still trying to figure out and process still even now, you know, now that the team is back assembled and, and you talk to players and try to get a sense of if they felt this amount of change was necessary, was it needed? And so, you know, time will tell really, you know, how this plays out. But, um, you know, I, I think part of, um, maybe the motivation behind it was something that general manager John Chica said recently, you know, if you don't make the playoffs for five years, it's probably time to explore a new direction. And, you know, that was probably a big, in, you know, incentive behind this big overhaul is yes, they're rebuilding. Yes. You have to be patient and you have to allow time for, for players to adapt and slot in and find their way. But you also probably have to poke and prod a little bit too, because, you can get bogged down in this. And I think that's kind of where they're at now and kind of teetering on that border of being patient, but also making sure that there is the opportunity to progress and the opportunity to grow and not become stagnant in this process. We've seen some rebuilds around the league that just go on and on and on. And that's fine to, 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 you know, take the time to see this process through, but there's also that fine line of not getting bogged down by it. And I think that was probably, you know, in some ways indicative of what they did this summer, it's re you know, realizing where they're at and, you know, not fooling themselves with where they are as a team, but also realizing that change does have to happen. You know, they do want to see progress and how can they best instigate that without, you know, steering too far away from, you know, the, the plan they signed up for initially. Yeah, and to that point, you look at the, the Ronta and Stepan trade as, as something that has made a, a couple steps along the rebuilding process. It's not something you make at the beginning. And in net, particularly uh, with Ronta, what do you think his prospects are as the number one goalie here in Arizona? Yeah, I'm interested to see how he handles the workload. And um, I think that's probably you know going to be the biggest challenge for him is just now you kind of have to manage those highs and lows and you get that rhythm of three and four or five and seven and you know how you figure that out because you know you could play a game and do well and sit on it and feel great for three weeks or you know you could play a game and you felt poorly about it and it kind of simmered and you know you had to sit on that for a few weeks and now he just has to flush it after every game you just kind of have to keep that even keel um, you know, go to work mentality uh, every day now to be ready. So I'm interested to see how he handles that because I, I really think then it's probably mostly mental. I think he showed, um, you know, the tool set to, to merit this opportunity. I think he probably maximized everything he could do as a backup. And now it's time to see, you know, how can he perform as a number one, giving that opportunity, can he translate it? So when you looked at what was available, you know, once they parted ways and traded Mike Smith, I, I think he probably was, you know, one of the best options, if not the best out there, who looked just ready for this chance. And, you know, you, you obviously take a risk because he hasn't been a number one, and, and you have to see how it plays out. But he just looks like a player who is ready for that opportunity. And now you look at the defense that's coming in front of him. 
Um, you know, they definitely, like we talked about, beefed up that area. It, you know, it's, it's not a defense that he saw in Chicago and New York necessarily, but that has improved from where it was last season. So I just think it got to the point where he and his career, he was ready for this opportunity. And it probably will be, you know, a mental battle to to combat that workload. But being around him so far, the conversations that we as the media have had with him, he seems to be very even keel, like happy-go-lucky. Um, that's what everyone says about him. So I think that is the type of attitude that plays well to this, where you don't get too high and too low, just kind of stay on the straight and narrow and, and come up, come to work every day ready to do your job. Sarah, we talk about all the, the personnel changes the Coyotes have made on the ice, but then, I mean, you have to look at the new head coach, Rick Tockett, who's had success as an assistant with Pittsburgh in the past. But when you look at the, the, the difference the, the style of play, I guess, how different the Coyotes could look under Rick Tockett. How, do you, how different do you see that being? I, you know, I, I think it'll, it'll change in the fact that, you know, maybe we see them as this more aggressive, um, you know, offensive-minded team. It, I mean, it really all is going to depend on the personnel. As much as you want to play a certain way in talk systems, you know, I think most teams play the same way. You know, they're all after the same objective. I don't think it's any secret. But, you know, and, and Rick has kind of talked about that, the discrepancies, you know, in, in a strategy. And I really think it's just the finite details that probably, you know, separate everyone from each other. Those little subtle differences, maybe a few plays here or there that they do differently. Um, so it, I think it really comes down to the skill set of these players. And if they're able to get up ice and use their legs and, and get shots off, we could see a very different looking team from, from how they played last year where it was tough to really find some cohesiveness and it felt like they were hemmed in their own end a lot and it, and it was tough to transition with speed like they did. Um, you know, I think at the beginning of 2015-16, it looked like they really kind of were catching teams off guard and they were setting the tone. To translate that for 82 games is a challenge, but, you know, I think that's how we're seeing the successful teams compete now. And, you know, it probably is somewhat of a copycat league. You look at what Pittsburgh does, you look at what Toronto and how they're trending and Edmonton and Calgary and, and Dallas. And so I think we could see them differently, but it really, you know, it does come down to the individual. As much as this is a team style and they want this to be the identity, it's going to be incumbent upon Max Domi to, to get open and push the pace and Anthony Duclair to have a bounce back season and find his touch around the net. And can Brendan Perlini, you know, still find ways to get that impressive wrist shot off now that people have a book on him. It really is going to be incumbent upon these players. And so as much as it's a team style and a team game and a team focus, I think we have to see how these, you know, individual players who a lot have expectations on them coming in, a lot have plenty of motivation to improve off what they did last season. If they can find a way to deliver that, I think we can see a completely different team than the one that kind of just slogged through the schedule last season and, and really, you know, probably felt a lot of frustration as early as November. Sarah, when I look at players who's, uh, who might be most impacted by Rick Tockett, we talked about Oliver ekman Larson already, and that's one guy you can point to easily. You just mentioned Anthony Duclair. I wonder sometimes whether he needed this change as much as anybody on the roster. Yeah, I think he's a good example of that, Who uh, a player who looks to capitalize on just kind of this breath of fresh air for the organization. Um, some different personnel obviously coming in. Um, he skated, you know, has skated with Max Domi and Derek Steppen, so maybe that's a number one line. So he's with players, um, you know, of similar skill sets who, you know, maybe have the potential to give him the puck, to put him in situations to capitalize. But having a coach come in, 
who wants players to, you know, essentially play free, play to your strengths, play the way that you played since you were a little kid that got you noticed, that got you, you know, in juniors and on national teams and ultimately drafted. You know, there is structure and there are principles that you do have to adhere to to be in the NHL. And you have to be responsible and mindful of all 200 feet of the ice. But I think that flexibility and not wanting to stymie creativity that Rick has just come in and expressed so far. And that's not to say that wasn't, that wasn't the case previously, but he's just very honed in on that message and has stressed that as a tenant, essentially, I think of the style and strategy he's trying to cultivate. I think that completely suits a player like Anthony Duclair, who is looking, um, you know, essentially to kind of, you know, realize which type, kind of player he is. He really is at a crossroads. There's one season where he scored 20 goals. He looked completely dynamic, very speedy, just looked like today's NHLer. And there's another season where he looked lost at times and out of place and overwhelmed by the competition. So who is the real Anthony Duclair? Was it year one or year two? And who he becomes in year three could probably set him up for how he is going to be in the NHL. So having this change... Um, this fresh set of eyes on him, some fresh line mates potentially. It really kind of sets up for a critical year for him, but one that you know probably has the potential to complement him very well as he tries to forge forward in his career. The Coyotes are certainly going to look a lot different this year, but the big question on Coyotes fans' minds is how much better will they be? Sarah, do you think this is a team that can challenge for a playoff spot this year, or is that still something that's one or two seasons down the road? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, you look on paper where they're at now versus where they were a year ago. Sure, they look better. Um, they look better at center. They look better certainly on defense. Um, you know, another year of experience for these young players, even though it was tough last season for a few of them, that experience matters. Um, you know, we'll see, you know, like we said, Antti Rantz has certainly looked intriguing, but he's never played a full year before. So there's some question marks, but yeah, they look better on paper, but how does that stack up against the rest of the West? That's the big question because the Coyotes got better, but Calgary got better, you know, Dallas got better. Uh, I don't think Anaheim wavered. I don't think Edmonton really wavered. Um, you know, there's just so much competition that you really start to break it down in trying to figure out which team can they leapfrog, whose spot can they take. And it's tough to find a team that you think is vulnerable enough to not make it. Um, I think there's probably more teams that look like they could push and contend than teams that could fall out. So it's really tough to say. And it's, it's tough to predict, too, when you get in a season when unpredictabilities arise and you don't know how, you know, lineups are going to shake out and shuffle through the season. But I think what should encourage Coyotes fans and those who want to see improvement is that they it looks like right now they have set themselves up for the chance to be better and whether or not that translates to enough wins or points to bridge that gap to be in contention in February March we'll see it's too tough to say right now but the moves they've made I think have given them the chance to be more competitive. And I think when you're in this process and you haven't missed the playoffs in five years, that's a good sign. I think that's something to hold on to because it isn't an overnight fix. It isn't, you know, basement to penthouse right away. Um, it is progress. And this year could set up to be a year of growth that sets them up so that, 
these next few years, it's just closing the gap, closing the gap, and getting closer to being that team that now it's, hey, someone else has to take our spot, and someone else has to try to push us out. You could make a case that Brendan Perlini's the best pure goal scorer on this team. I mean, I know he's still relatively unproven, but he was scoring at about a 20-goal pace last year if you put it out over 82 games. Last year, that would have led the Coyotes in goals, tied with Reddy and Verbata, who's not there anymore. Uh, Sarah, what do, what do you see as Perlini's upside? Is he somebody that could lead the team in, in total goals as soon as this year? I, I think he has the potential to be someone who is a steady goal scorer, a steady contributor. You know, we'll see, you know, if someone, if he leads the pack, you never know. There could be that surprise, you know, maybe Max Domi takes off after, you know, with a full season ahead of him or Anthony Duclair. Um, but I think what what's encouraging about Brendan Perlini is, um, you know, he I, he just loves the game. And I, I think he's, you know, kind of almost just like loves watching, loves observing. He loves working at his craft. And so, yeah, teams are probably going to have a little bit more of an in-depth scouting report on him now. And they're going to try to take away time and space. But they can't take away that natural ability of his shot. And some of it is, you know, probably natural ability, but some of it's work. And he works on that shot. And he's worked on that shot, that wrist shot, for years. And he pays attention to it. So, really, the key then is just getting the opportunity to release it. And when he does, I, I think he's confident now that he can beat goalies. He's able to put it in spots where they aren't. And he's able to be accurate and, and you know, and get on net. So, you know, his challenge, I think, is just going to be able to find those openings, use his legs um, to kind of catch defenses off guard, catch goalies off guard, um, you know, try to elude them that way. But you can't take away his natural ability when he has the opportunity to wind up and snap the puck. And I think, you know, for from the team's perspective, that has to be encouraging that that's there, that base is there. And, you know, now it's just a matter of, of executing and finding ways to, to get that puck on net because I do think he has the ability, um, based on his track record so far, to be someone who's counted on to score, you know, score quite a few goals for this team. And they need that. They need to start establishing proven goal scores, I think, to really move this process forward. Sarah McClellan, you can find her on Twitter at AZC underscore McClellan. Sarah, thanks so much for the time. Great insight as always. We look forward to uh, to reading your work this season. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, there's very few people that know more about the uh, the Arizona Coyotes than Sarah McClellan. She's pretty dialed in. Now, look, the three of us are pretty dialed in as well, so we probably have a few more topics here we can hit on with them, and at least a few things Sarah said that we could uh, we could react to. And I think one of them, it, it's. It was definitely the biggest story with this team last year, and I think it's still a major storyline this season. We asked her about the the main rookies that could make the team this year. She brought up the experience that a guy like Christian Fisher has, and Dylan Strom has some experience as well. It's it's not exactly the same as as Fisher, but when you look at those three rookies, I mean, I, it's it's not inconceivable all three of them make a, a noticeable impact this year. No, I and I I think all three will be on this roster. I, I, you know, right out of camp. Right out of camp. Okay. Christian Fisher, I had someone tell me that he would have been on the team last year, but they didn't want to burn his the first year of his ELC. It's the only reason he didn't make they, – they loved him last year. Yeah. But, you know, you're, you're in a growth period. You've already got a bunch of other rookies playing in the lineup. Maybe made sense to play him down in the AHL for a year and let him develop. But Seemed to work yeah, for him. He had a terrific year. He really did. But he's got – you know, he's got an NHL body already. He's got the right attitude. John Chaga calls him a natural-born leader. He seems to have all those ingredients, and, and he plays with enough pace that he'll be able to play in this system. Just looks like a, a really good power forward prospect moving forward 
So I see him, you know, I think he's going to start in a bottom six role, let him work his way in, but he, he's one of the few right shots in this lineup. So he's a valuable commodity for them. And, the, and those other guys, I mean, Dylan Strom, I mean, it's time. It's, it's time he breaks in. If it doesn't happen this year, then people are really going to start questioning his long-term prospects. And I think fairly, if he doesn't make an impact this season, Clayton Keller to me is the wild card. He's the guy, I, I really don't know what to expect. We've heard so much about his creativity, his speed, his ability to make plays at NHL speed. But until he does it in this game, it's hard to say what he's going to do. And now they're going to move him to the right side where he's played the least of the three forward positions. So it's a challenge. John Chica likes the idea of him being on his forehand when he comes into the offensive zone. And I get that. But there's not a comfort level there. And now you're asking him to do it at the NHL level. Yeah, but see, that I think that worked out or could work out on a number of levels. First of all, the Coyotes are obviously very thin at right wing. So yes. just simply out of necessity, you want to take one of your players that, you know, if Clayton Keller makes this team, it's as a top six forward. He's not going to be playing on the fourth line. It just doesn't make any sense with the way he plays. So if you can find a way to get him or, I mean, you look on the left side, you already have Max Domi and Brendan Perlini. You don't want to move them to the right side because they've already had success on the left side at the NHL level. But on top of that, the fact that he is a left-handed shot you come into the zone, you're already lined up for one-timers. It's a lot easier to to release the puck much quicker if you are if you're a left-handed shot playing the right side or vice versa. So I understand it's not where he's comfortable, or I shouldn't say where he's comfortable, but it's not where he's played most of his career. But if he can make that transition and make it quickly and still be as effective on that side as he would have been on the other side, that to me could be the biggest boost for the Coyotes this year. Yeah, and I think there's two ways to look at that. You look at it the first way, which is the opportunity. He's going to have the opportunity to play with highly talented players higher up in the lineup than maybe he normally would have because he has to move to the other side. And he's going to have, as you point out, an ability to shoot the puck from a, a better area than he would have normally. It is going to challenge him a little bit as he gets deep in the zone to pass the puck. It's going to challenge him a little bit trying to get back on defense, playing playing on his off wing. But he's going to get the opportunity to be around better players and the opportunity to be successful. And that's one of those things where you just got to, got to work on it as hard as you can because you're going to be given an opportunity that maybe your career arc says just maybe a year down the road just because of necessity on that right side. And he can run with it. And to Dylan, the point about Dylan Strom, there's a lot of expectations. They, they know the centers that, didn't get, that they didn't get to draft two picks ahead of them and one pick ahead of them. They're going to need Dylan Strom to be an impact player or else it's going to cause them to need to get another piece down the middle if they truly want to be a, a playoff contender for multiple years in the future. It's so weird with Strom because typically when you see a player, and, and I understand it's time, but a lot of people look at him like he's 26 years old. He's right. still 20. But but what's weird about it is typically you see a player that, that gets drafted and then you start to look at the players after him and you're like, oh, look, this guy's doing this and this guy's doing that and you're measured against them. He's still being measured against Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel, which he was never supposed to be. And it's not like the Coyotes passed on Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel to draft him. So it is, it's, it's just, that's a very compelling storyline for this team. We've discussed this in the past. They need to know where he slots into this lineup. They just need to know, is he, is he eventually going to be a number one center? Is he a two? Is he a three? They just need to know because that's, they have to build around him. And I think that's to Craig's point. That's not like if he doesn't have success this year, he's never going to play in the NHL. But if he's going to be a first or second line center, you need to see those flashes this at this stage in his career, or else history tells us it's unlikely he's going to get back up to that spot. And 
you know, even if he ends up as a career as a third line center, yes, there's a need for that, but it's going to be less than what the expectations were when he was drafted. Absolutely, you can't. If if Dylan Strome ends up as a third line center, you cannot evaluate him any other way than to say he was a disappointment. Not this year. Was, you're saying long term. Yeah, long term. Yeah. Because yeah, because if he's he's the number three pick in the draft. Yeah. You can't have that happen with the number three pick in the draft. And you know what? When we look at this team too. There's so many questions for this team, and I, I guess that's natural with all the changes. I, I, I just I have so many questions about how parts are going to impact other parts, but we've waited for the longest time for the Coyotes to have a competent center position. And when we when we you know when you hear all the criticisms of Dave Tippett coach teams in the past and the structure that they played and not letting teams play freewheeling style, look at the roster. Look at the guys he had to play with. Peter Holland was one of their centers last year. Alexander Mistrov was one of their centers last year. These guys are not top six centers. So when you don't have that, it forces you to play a different style. Now they have Derek Stepan, who I don't know if he's a true number one or not, but he definitely improves their depth. Christian Dvorak is, is taking great strides forward. I really like his game so far. And if Dylan Strom at least becomes that, you know, a number two caliber center, what sort of impact can that have on the rest of the lineup? How much better can Max Domi be playing with a, a creative center like Derek Stepan instead of a Martin Hansel who just clears space and creates net presence? How about a guy that he can, you know, they can play off each other with the puck? How much is that going to change his game? How much is Anthony Duclair going to be impacted by that kind of player? There's so many guys around them that might be impacted, and it just underscores the importance of the center position to success in this league. Well, it just, it opens a lot of doors once you know what Strom is, because if he could somehow become a number one within, you know, by the end of this year or next year, then all of a sudden Derek Stepan is your number two is a tremendous luxury. And Christian Dvorak is your number three. Like we haven't talked about him much on the show because I think we're all just comfortable that we know he can do the job. I think he could do the job as a number two center just fine. But again, you don't draft Dylan Strom to be your number three center with the third pick. So if he ends up being a one or a two, then you can move some pieces around. You mentioned Anthony Duclair and you mentioned Max Domi in there. And you asked this to, to Sarah. It, it makes the most sense maybe for anybody on this team to have a new coach and to have Rick Tockett in there with the, the style of, of play he likes to, uh, to have his teams run for Anthony Duclair. I mean, he is set up for success now this year, better than he was last year. That's not to say it wasn't his fault that he struggled last year, but he's on a one-year deal at this point. He chose to do that. This is his year to, to put up or shut up in terms of maybe the rest of his career. Yeah, and I think he's the player that if we're singling out one Coyote that you need to watch this season, it's him because his long-term future is very much on the line. If, if this doesn't work out in Arizona, he would go somewhere else on his third franchise. For somebody with that much potential, particularly in the offensive zone, it's, it's tough to see why he would be bouncing around so often. If it doesn't work with now, this will be a third coach, second one with the Coyotes, it's not going to work. And I don't believe we're at that stage yet. I, I want to look at last year as, as a one-year anomaly. But it's not like he was tearing it up in the minor leagues either when he was sent down. And now, you, you know, you could say that there's a mental factor. They're all human. And he's thinking, you know, wow, I've, I've just been demoted. I thought I, I thought I made it. I thought I would never be back down there. And, you know, now I'm playing in the minors. But if he can't have success in this system, I, it, I don't like his long-term future. He does look a lot more comfortable. I know it's just camp and it's only been a couple days, but even in the scrimmages, I mean, he just looks more comfortable this year. So I don't know if that is him reacting to the fact that a guy like Rick Tockett is the coach now, uh, if that's just him getting a break 
away from the game a little bit in the offseason. When things start to spiral out of control in your 30 games into the season, for some guys, it's tough to pull out of that and fix it with 50 games still going on around you. You know, it's and that's what happened to him last year. So maybe he just he had that break. He sort of refocused. Not to say he wasn't focused last year, but he just sort of he needed that that time away. And maybe he's going to be better this year, just simply based on that. I don't know. Maybe he plays more with Max Domi this year. He has performed well on a line with Domi in the past, and that didn't really happen a whole lot last season. But I mean, you guys are right. He's He's the one with the most individually to prove on this team this year. I don't think there's any question. I guess Dylan Strome, too. Those are probably the two guys. Those would be the two, yeah. But you look up and down this lineup, and you could rattle off eight, nine, ten different players who have a lot of upside, but we don't know exactly what you're going to get. But at the same time, to have that many players that could have upside is sort of unique. In all my years covering this team, I can't remember going into a season where – they have the uh, they've ever had a wider range of possible outcomes. I mean, they could uh, go out there and, and they yeah. could a lot of guys could hit sophomore slumps. Duclair could not pull out of it and they could struggle this year. Antiranto could take a while to adjust and they could finish towards the bottom of the standings. Or, I mean, if if a lot of these guys deliver on their upside, and it doesn't even have to be all of them, this could be a playoff team that could surprise somebody in round one. I mean, they have that range this year. On that note, as, as since we were talking about that. You, you, all three of us have talked about this before. When, when, when you're talking about whether a team can make the playoffs having missed the previous year, you always look at which teams they're going to supplant. When you look at the West, who are the candidates that you see for a potential fall out of the playoffs from last year? Well, if you're looking, I think if you're looking specifically for the Coyotes, your, your best path might just be to get in through the Pacific and just try and get in as one of those top three teams. Okay, so which teams are you finishing ahead of? Who, who are you finishing ahead of? Because, I, I mean, when I look at the, the Pacific, I'm pretty sure Anaheim and Edmonton are in the playoffs. I would agree year. with that. Yeah. So now you're talking about San Jose and Calgary. You need to get past both of them? We're And we're, for the purposes of doing these predictions, we're just assuming everybody's healthy. I mean, obviously, if yeah. Connor McDavid just retires in the middle of the season, Edmonton's not making the playoffs, but let's just assume everybody's at full strength. You're right. I don't see Anaheim dropping off because they are they're, they're pretty balanced at this point. And you don't miss the playoffs when you have one of the two or three best players in the world with McDavid. So, yeah, you would have to, I guess, jump a team like San Jose. I mean, I don't see Calgary dropping off e- either. So Yeah, I mean, Calgary got better this offseason. San Jose didn't, but there was a 29-point difference between Arizona and San Jose. That's, 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 I, that's a lot to make up. Yes, Arizona got better. Yes, San Jose lo- loses Patrick Marlowe, but... That's a lot of points to make up in one year. That's why I don't necessarily think that we shouldn't look at, as we, ta- as we record this in the preseason, we shouldn't look at the Coyotes' season as successful or not successful based on whether or not they make the playoffs. Because I, I don't think that, I think they're going to take steps forward, and I just don't think they're going to take as many steps forward as needed to jump a San Jose or a Nashville or a Calgary. Like, who, uh, who, dro- who drops out? Also, you still have Winnipeg in front of you, who, again, still has goaltending problems, but they Dallas. have a ton of talent. Dallas is, is expected to be Some better. Some people are picking them to win the cup. Uh, Which I don't think is... I mean, that wouldn't be my pick, but that's not... The West is crazy. weird. ...crazy. The, the West is weird. And, I, I mean, to be just to be clear, I'm not saying... I'm not sitting here picking the Coyotes to make the playoffs. I just think that they have a much wider range than they have. Even in the years when they were good, you kind of knew, all right, this should at least be a playoff team, or they should at least get in there and, and, and be a contender. Even those years they were running into Detroit in the first round... This year, it's I could really see it going any number of different ways. You're right. The, the, to jump from 70 to 99 points, I don't see them doing that. But they could make a considerable jump. And I do think playoffs are not 
they should make a considerable jump. My concern with them would just be how they start out of the gate mm-hmm. with all these players that haven't played together under a coach they've never played for in front of a goalie that has not been the Arizona Coyotes' number one goalie before. He wasn't here, and he wasn't a number one. But if they can get through those first that first month of the season hovering right around 500, then I kind of like their chances to at least be a factor. Yeah, it goes back. Are they playing meaningful games late in the season? And it goes back to a point that Craig's brought up on the show that Dave, Dave Tippett talked about the last two seasons. It's a lot easier to win when there's no pressure, when you're not really playing for anything. You're just playing to play. And I want to see how this young team performs if they are within maybe in a wild card spot or within five, six points of a wild card spot late in the season, can they perform under that sort of pressure or do they get off to a slow start to the point where they're never really in playoff contention at any point in the season? Because the way they play and what you're going to learn about your young players is vastly different in those two scenarios. What looks like a successful season to you guys? When, when measuring this team, how many points do they need to? What's the threshold for them to be a successful team this season in, in their progression? Not not measured against the rest of the league. Not you don't want me to say 121 points. Yeah, that would be a really good season. Uh, that would have to be the biggest jump in NHL history. I would say. I would say in the 80s, mid 80s. Yeah, that's I, exactly where yeah. I'm. 85 is sort of my yeah. cutoff. Just, just be over be over NHL 500. I don't want to be talking about the lottery a year from now because a no team from Arizona in any sport ever wins the lottery, and b in the NHL you have a better chance of moving up in the lottery if you were like the the. 12th from the bottom instead of second from the bottom. So they they should be, to me, a successful season is you see progress from the three rookies and you see a lot of the guys that played well last year, like Brendan Perlini and Christian Dvorak, not take a step back. And I'm not unrealistic. I'm sure somebody is going to take a step back this year. But I want to see more than not. I want to see a lot of these guys either stabilizing or continuing to, uh, to deliver on some upside. And I want to see them as a factor in the final month of the season for a playoff spot. You, you want to see tangible progress from the young players. You want to see them progress from last year to this season, and you want to see them progress throughout the season. Are they making the same mistakes in March as they make in October? If they are, that's a problem. If they're growing, that's what you want to see. And that's why I'm even hesitant to put that point total. We know we all said kind of lower to mid-80s. Because I'm not sure that's going to be what the, the, the gauge is. Because we don't know what the injuries are going to be. But I, I want to see what Dylan Strom has. And more importantly, I want to see what these guys' long-term prospects look like. Do they look like, all right, this is the best that they're going to be. Do they have first-line upside? Do they have second-line upside? Because it's tough for the franchise to put the pieces around them that's going to make this team a playoff contender before they know where exactly everybody fits in. And I think that's what you're looking for. Progress and where does everybody fit in and what's your best guess for that player's upside now that they've played 30, 40, 50, 70 games in the league. Yeah, you, you, I think going into next season, you want to feel confident that this team should be a playoff team. I think that sort of speaks to what Jamie's saying. If you're going to tell me they, they finished this year with 79 points, but they really take off in the second half and you can, you can see some pretty stable progression... That I would prefer as opposed to they start good and then they sort of trail off and look lost but finish with three more points in the standings. Mm-hmm. It's not so much the point total. It's we have a lot of questions on this team, but they're good questions. There's a lot of upside with these players. That's legit. There's not a lot of teams around the league that have this many different players that have upside. Now, a lot of other teams have more established guys, but when you look at the legitimate skill and talent and speed on this team, I want to have a lot of these questions, if not all of them, answered by the end of the season. And you want the majority of them to be answered positively. Let me go back to that question I asked Sarah. I want, want to get your take on this as well. 
with Jason Demers in the fold and once Jacob Chikrin comes back. So you're looking at a, a top pairing of OEL and Nicholas Chalmerson. You've got Alex Goligoski and Jason Demers on your second pair. And your third pairing is probably Jacob Chikrin and Luke Shen. How many blue lines in the West are better than this team? Well, I mean, let, let's go through it. Uh, Chicago. No, <laughs> LOL. I think Sarah was just being nice to me there because she knows I'm a Blackhawk fan. But the, the Blackhawks blue line is a, is a train wreck yeah, right there's... now. It's Duncan Keith and... You missed Craig openly. And the guy that used to be Brent Seabrook. Yeah. The artist formerly known as as a top-pairing defenseman. I I think we're all in agreement that Calgary, Nashville, and probably Anaheim, although it was interesting. I asked Tyson Nash, and he's not as impressed with Anaheim's blue line. Maybe maybe because they don't have that that elite piece. Right. We've talked about Anaheim as a whole as a team that just is very just – their depth is what makes them good. And, you know, I love a couple of those players. But I'd still still take Anaheim's for right now. You would still take Anaheim, but a lot of this hinges on Oliver Ekman-Larsen because we would all agree, at his best, he's better than anybody on Anaheim. I mean, at his best, he could potentially be a top-five defenseman yeah, in his league. Yeah. is definitely higher. But what they've never had around him is depth. And so you would look at the Coyotes' defense, and you would say, okay, uh, well, OEL has that, that potential to maybe someday even be a Norris finalist if everything comes together. But when he's not on the ice, they've got a lot of issues. And they had issues last year, but they even just adding Demers and the— eventual evolution of Jacob Chikrin, I just, this is suddenly a very deep blue line when Chikrin's healthy. Yes, and again, it's important. It's, it's, it's like pitchers in baseball. You need depth, and you need depth on defense. Somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to miss time. Now they have it. They have, who else is on there right now? Because Kevin Connaughton can play both sides. Right. It, it, I mean, the guys that... as a seventh defenseman that can come in every once in a while, that, that's, pretty, that's a pretty decent luxury to have as well. Yep. That's probably your seventh defenseman right yeah. now. That when, top, when Jacob Chikrin comes back. Yeah, and that top pairing, I, mean, I asked Max Domi about this on Friday, and he was saying, yeah, I mean, practice against these guys every day. And so now when you have Oliver Ekman-Larsen and you have Nicholas Jalmerson, who wasn't there before, he's like, as a player, you typically, when you're on the ice, you just instinctually figure out where the weakness is on defense, and you're like, oh, I'll just go to that side. And, and Domi's line was basically, when I'm, when I'm out there against uh, OEL and Jalmerson, I just cycle back into my zone with the puck. <laughs> First but, day of camp, yeah. uh, when, when Rick Tockett was, uh, you could watch him on the ice. So this wasn't just for the media, although he mentioned it to the media as well. He was pretty rough on him the first day because he didn't, he didn't like the shape that a bunch of guys were in. He didn't like the focus of a lot of guys, but he kept going over to Chalmerson and complimenting him yeah. on something because Nick Chalmerson is so solid. I talked to him today. One of the questions I've had about him, obviously I've watched a lot of Blackhawk games. He has a lot of mileage on his body. They, they had a lot of deep playoff forays. The style he plays is all in he sacrifices his body I asked him about it. he said you know the funny thing is people have been asking me about that but we didn't go very far in the playoffs the last two years <laughs> I feel fresher than I felt in a few years like oh okay yeah. <laughs> it was interesting to hear that was probably depressing for you <laughs> but yeah, it, was, yeah. It, it worked on one level and the other is a reminder like, oh yeah, uh-huh. reminder. yeah. When, but, but another thing to keep in mind too as you go from season to season we didn't see Alex Goligoski's best last year. We mm-hmm. certainly didn't see Oliver ekman Larson's best, and we know why, and multiple reasons. So those two players, we expect to make, sometimes in ekman Larson's case, massive steps forward this year. And those aren't new additions. Those are just additions by them getting better and being more comfortable. And, and this not system wants to favor problems. that style of play, Absolutely. too. They want those guys jumping up into the So rush. that blue line was going to get – was already looking like it was going to improve if they added nobody. And now they have added a couple really, really good pieces. I just I, 
I measured the defense fairly or unfairly back that 2012 team when they went to the Western Conference Finals. Mm-hmm. A lot of that was because of the defense. Agreed. And it was how they had a lot of sort of underrated players like your Adrian Acoins and your Derek Morris and uh, Rusty Klesla and Michael Roosevelt, guys that weren't necessarily carrying a lot of star power. Like Oliver Ekman Larson was on that team, but he wasn't the player that he is yet. And they just they fit well together. And the way I look at this defense now, and again, I'm saying this with Chikrin uh, in the mix, but if Chikrin is your number five defenseman, and he's he's partnered up with a, a big, bruising sort of stay-at-home guy like Luke Shen, your third pairing is all of a sudden decent. You're talking two former first-round picks, and one of them looks every bit like he should have been a first-round pick, and Luke Shen's fine. I mean, you know, when, when, you're not, when you're not in Toronto expecting him to be a top-five pick sort of player, he's fine, especially on your third defensive your third pairing. pairing. You're really happy with that. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, it allows Jacob Chikrin to develop at his own pace instead of forcing him into the top four where he's going to face tougher matchups. You can pick the situations you want to play Jacob Chikrin in now, and that's so good for his development. Absolutely. I, I, I echo that sentiment completely. I think the Demers, not only does it help the team, it really helps Jacob Chikrin. It really does. They, it will allow them to use them in, to his strengths. It will allow him to, to slowly ease him into tougher situations, and it allows him to develop, especially coming off of an injury, without having to worry about playing top four meaningful minutes against top six players on the other team. And he's played with Goligoski before in Dallas. I mean, all of a sudden now you you basically have reunited two players that were fairly successful with Dallas, and you're not asking them to be your number one pairing. I mean, that's the key is now everybody has sort of slid into where they need to be. It's, it's, it's crazy how much that addition of Nicholas Jalmerson puts everybody in the right spot, and it's what you have to do. When you have – when your best player – is your number one defenseman, you have to get him a good defensive partner. You just, you have to. And, you know, I'd even go one step further with the way Rick Tockett is likely going to coach this team and the focus on the the speed and the skill up front, you're going to leave your defense exposed a little Mm -hmm. bit. So the talent level had to be, uh, it had to be adjusted up in this this offseason. Like Jamie said, they were going to be better defensively anyway, but that might not have shown with the way the new system they're going to play. But when you add Jalmerson and Demers and you look at you know Chikrin taking another step forward, they should be better talent-wise as well. I'm really curious how Nicholas Chalmerson is going to pair with EL. I, I do think in many ways it's a great fit. But Sarah said something that, that we've been talking about at Coyotes Camp for the last few days, and I've always believed this about Chalmerson. I think he's a better puck-moving defenseman than people know, but he played so much with Duncan Keith. When, when you're on the ice with Duncan Keith, you want to just get Duncan Keith the puck because yeah. he's phenomenal with the puck. But I think Chalmerson has that ability, and I think the system will allow him to do that a little more than people have seen it. It might be a little bit surprising to people. Yeah, and again, when you when you have a, a crown jewel piece like Oliver Ekman Larson, you don't want to stifle his creativity, and you want to stick him with somebody that not only helps him grow as a player, but that complements him as a player. And he finally looks like he has that piece in Nick Chalmerson. How much do you think it impacts the defense? And I guess we're talking about how how different it is personnel wise, so maybe it doesn't impact them that much. But they've they've played with Mike Smith the last what, five six years, where every time the puck was anywhere near the net, he was coming out and playing it up the ice and, and triggering the transition the other way. Antiranta's not that guy. There really aren't any other guys in the NHL quite like Mike Smith. So there's going to be a little bit of an adjustment period there, especially for guys that that have been here for a few years, like Oliver Ekman Larson. How long do you think it takes to get used to that? That's a really good question, to be honest. It's, Thank you. It's something worth pursuing because it is an entirely different style, and they did rely. I know a lot of people criticized Mike for his puck handling because they they saw the gaffe that that one, as I called it, misadventure that he had every game. But he he made a lot of good outlet passes too. He he relieved pressure on the defense a lot, and that stuff goes unnoticed often. 
this will be a different style where the defenseman will have to come and retrieve it unless I don't know how much John Elkins working with him on retrieving the puck, but it hasn't been his style. So that will be an interesting adjustment to watch. What about leadership with this team? I, well, Shane Doan's gone, obviously. We know that, and we know how much he's Don't bury the lead. He is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's gone, and, but, you know, not from this studio because we'll have him on later this week. That's right. But sometimes I think that element gets overrated where, oh, if you lose this one guy, they're, they're never going to be the same. I think Rick Tockett's right that there are guys in this locker room that can be leaders. And if, if you are at the opening day, the media day press conference for Derek Stepan, just listening, listening to that guy talk, you thought immediately, this guy's going to be wearing a letter, and he should because he's going to have that kind of impact on this team. He's, he seems to be a natural-born leader. They have a bunch of guys that I think can fill these roles. And you, you have younger guys coming up who are maybe ready to take that step, but they've always sort of been under the Shane Doan umbrella. A guy like Max Domi, who's who's starting to blossom, who's talking about his hair at the podium now, just really letting letting it all, letting his hair hang. Oh, down, wow. Oh. And then I being think, trolled uh, by Anthony yeah. Duclair. Yes, on, then, on, yeah. which, I mean, because that's basically what he does. Anthony Duclair, who has the same hairdo, by the way. That's, so. you know, it's, yeah. yeah, well, whatever. That's not the point. It, it's a good room. And I think, yeah. that, I think that's the biggest difference. You don't have a locker room that needed somebody to be needed to police it because there was going to be problems otherwise. And, that, and that's not that's by any means a knock on Shane Doan's leadership or whatnot. It's more of a compliment for the other pieces they have in the room and the discipline that those guys have. All that three guys they brought in are unbelievable. Exactly. Yeah. Just, talk to them. They're unbelievable personalities. And just because they're new to the team doesn't mean they can't be team leaders, especially when some of them have cup rings, plural, and some of them they come into a locker room with a lot of players that are younger than them. They don't necessarily need to have been in Arizona a while. The coach hasn't been, been in Arizona for years, so you don't yeah. necessarily need somebody that's been there. And they do have that person. They do have Oliver ekman Larson. I mean, they have plenty of people there that can kind of pick up the young guys. And they have now, which is something we were concerned about at the beginning of the offseason, they now have a few of those veterans that have been through the wars and have been through the battles to help push the younger players when they're going through a three- or five-game losing streak, when it gets tough late in the season. They have those players now. And you know what? Just because some of them are 27 or 28 and they're not 35 doesn't mean they can't lead. And, and a lot of those younger guys that have been here, whether it's Max Domi or Oliver ekman Larson, you know, Max grew up around the game. He's sort of a unique specimen in the sense that he was, he was around the NHL when he was five years old and not just watching games. He was hanging out with Mario Lemieux and Matt Sundin and guys that, that his dad, Ty Domi, would, would hang out with. So he's he sort of has that leadership just built into him. But you know, those guys learned from Shane Doan. So they're not going to be Shane Doan, but they've been learning from him. It's almost been a, an apprenticeship over the last few years for a guy like Oliver ekman Larson. So you do have that as well. But it is, it's a unique situation this year in the sense that Christian Fisher said this, Rick Tockett even said this. It was sort of like the first day of camp was like the first day of school for everybody or for, you know, not 75% so of it. So many of these guys know who each other are, but they don't really know each other. And so... That's that's going to be something to watch, and that I think is is an area where a guy like Oliver ekman Larson, who not only has been around the league but been around the Coyotes for a while, will have to step up, and, and a guy like Max Domi as well. What do you think it says about the fact that a guy like Jason Demers? I know it was Vancouver, but he wouldn't he wouldn't waive his his no movement to go there, but he you know he did to come here. And one of the things he said can't, was... I can't figure out why somebody would not want to play in well, Vancouver that's, right now. They yeah, lost that's, nine to that's four. That's a hard in Vegas. qualifier for me when I hear Vancouver. Yeah. But take Vancouver out of the equation. <laughs> he wish. was He was willing to do it. They'll take themselves out of the, oh, the equation. They have already. He was willing to do it to play here. And when you see some of his comments, and Craig, you got some of these quotes from him, you know, so you could maybe even speak to this better than me. 
you know, he seems genuine, genuinely excited about being in Arizona. And Derek Stepan, same way. And the only reason I ask this is because players know better than anybody just the sort of vibe that a, a team has. And no, the Coyotes don't have the history of a Montreal Canadiens or you know, whoever, but they do have a lot of young players mm-hmm. and all these guys know each other. Yeah, there's, there's a, bu- a bunch of young talent here. There's a guy with whom he's very familiar that he's probably going to be partnered with on defense. That helps as well. It, it's, and it's an exciting style to play as well. You have a coach coming in who's preaching this up-paced style. He just won a couple cups with the Pittsburgh Penguins. There are a lot of positives. You know what's interesting? And, it, and it's a trade, so he didn't have any say. All, the, all these players that we're talking about, whether it's Chalmerson or Stepan or Antiranta, they all, all came via trade, which yeah. John Chica knew he was going to have to do anyway because the free agent class wasn't good. So they, it's not like they had a choice when they were coming here. But you know what's not coming up? You know what nobody's talking about? The arena. Yeah. None of these players are even talking about that as being a dark cloud or a concern. It just hasn't even been mentioned. That's been interesting. Which is a change of pace from free agents from two <laughs> or three year years ago. Every year in the past. Yeah. yeah, and again, they weren't free agents, but nobody seems concerned about it, which is interesting to me. I think when you, you look at what's going on in Edmonton, you look at what's going on in Calgary, a li- and you, I think teams are lo- uh, players are looking and saying, I want to be a part of a young, exciting team on the upswing, where I, especially for a player like Demers, I can not only help, but I could help lead. I, I could be on the, not necessarily the ground floor, but close to the ground floor on building something. And again, you put that together with the fact that, you know, again, it's, it's a great place to live. It's mm-hmm. a great, it's a, it's a cheap place to live. It's one of relatively. It is a popular, popular spot for NHL players. A lot of guys like living here. So yeah. you have a team on this upswing. You have a young team, which again, good energy. You have a coach that's willing to play an exciting system. There's a need for a player of your caliber. And it's a great place to live and bring the family. Those that's a lot of things in the positive category. And they're all they all play for different players, different levels of importance, but they all are important. And I think just specifically it goes, you know, to the players, to the fact that in years past it felt like the coyotes were sort of an afterthought when you took a big picture look at the league when you were talking about free agents or even guys that were getting traded not kind of rolling their eyes that they were getting traded to the team out in the desert and you know who's on that team other than Shane Doan and maybe two or three other guys that they would know everybody around the league knows who Max Domi is and Oliver Ekman Larson a lot of these guys work out with with those guys or they've played with them in the past internationally or whatever and there's more i mean again the players know they know that a guy like Christian Dvorak's tough to play against i, I just that, to me, when a team starts to get good, that's one of the first signs is when the other players around the league have a more favorable view of them. So hopefully that's, that's how this works out for the Coyotes. One thing we haven't talked about, one thing we really haven't mentioned, is the guy who engineered all of this. Look at the makeover that John Chica has engineered since the end of last season. At, at a breakneck pace. I have, as Sarah said it, too, it's probably go down as the most, you know, she was just talking about that one week where people were leaving. Chaos. <laughs> but by and large, people were leaving, you know, they... It was like out with the old, in with the new. But I agree. I've never seen such a complete makeover of a franchise in all my time covering professional sports. It, it feels like a video game. It feels like you're playing the NHL video game and you decide, hey, I'm, I'm just going to make a bunch of trades and I'm going to improve my team however you can. Except this is real life and you're dealing with real players and agents and, and other GMs. And and like we, we go, goes back to the McGinn trade. Being willing to say, okay, this was a mistake. Let's immediately move on and not let it be a two- or three-year mistake. That is such a valuable asset for a general manager to have mm-hmm. is to recognize, okay, this isn't working. Can I can I make this work? And almost everywhere he's been John Chica's been able to find an upgrade. He's not just been able to, oh God, we just have to get rid of this guy and cut our losses. 
He found an upgrade for this trade. And he is he's mentioned this himself, and it was it was a conscious decision. He has reallocated their cap money in areas where it belongs. Yep. They've spent at the right positions for the right players instead of spending unwisely in other areas. And again, Jamie McGinn was one of their big signings last summer. It didn't work out at all. I'm not sure he's a fit, even in Rick Tocketism. I didn't think they were going to be able to get rid of him, to be honest. I kept Whenever I did lineup projections, he was the guy who was just like... Just didn't fit. Where does he fit? I don't know where to put and him. And I don't think like his career is over. He might no. be fine in Florida, but it just it wasn't it wasn't fitting here. And right. we we talked about Chica before this crazy offseason, and, and he didn't have as many moves to look at, so the sample size was smaller. But the move to go out and be able to draft Jacob Chikrin where they did, and some of the other you know to at least be able to bring in Alex Goligoski because he was a free agent. The early report card on, on John Chica was either incomplete or good. Anything that he had done, you know, the McGinn move was probably, in retrospect, that was that was a mistake, but they got rid of it. And who, so who was behind the McGinn signing, well, right? And yeah. that's the thing. The hockey operations department looked a lot different a year ago. Dave Tippett was involved in that. Yeah. Gary Drummond was a part of that. Granted, his was more just for, like, a voice in the room, a, a voice of reason. But they had other people influencing decisions. When John Chica was just handed the reins... This is what happened, and it's we, we don't know if they're going to have success yet. So we have a like we said, we have a ton of questions, but he hasn't been afraid to pull the trigger on a lot of moves, dramatic moves that have completely reshaped this roster. And if it has success right out of the gate here, if they have success in year one, even if it doesn't lead to the playoffs, a lot of people are going to take notice. He right. continues to make moves where he doesn't give up much, and so he he is bringing in pieces that are either going to work out really well and he ripped the other GM off, or it's just nothing. He, he's not giving up a lot. Look, let's be honest, he didn't have a whole lot to give up when he first came in here other than, I guess, some high-end prospects. But he has managed, even going out and getting Lawson Krauss for basically nothing. Like You don't look at anything John Chike has done and say, oh, I can't believe they let this guy get away. I know it's only been a little over a year, but you do look at what he's done and, and, and you say, I don't know how they got him. Like Sean Tierney, did you see his tweet yesterday yeah, from The Athletic? Yeah, I did. It's uh, this is his tweet is some NHL team should pay someone to sit in their office and answer the phone solely to ensure Chaika never gets through to the GM. He's done this a couple times well, now. Well, look at the Nick Chalmerson trade. What did they give up for that? They gave up Connor Murphy, who's probably a third pairing defenseman, and Lauren Dauphin, who is a guy who's going to float between the AHL and the yeah, NHL. A, and in an ideal world, he, he's probably not on your NHL roster. Yeah, quad A player essentially. But granted, Chicago had to just shed salary, yeah. but. You see those opportunities, you take advantage but, of them. But yeah. this is where you, you do take advantage, and, and it's one of those things where you had a, um, not quite a blank slate, but pretty much a blank slate. There were very few bad contracts on the team. There was a lot of space to move with, and he's been proactive. And I think that's, so often GMs are reactive. They, they get themselves into, needed or not, into cap hell, and they go, oh man, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? I got to move this guy, I got to move this guy, I got to take pennies on the dollar to move them. And that's where you can take advantage of having that space and having that ability to take on a player and say, no, 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 we can get a player that's valued at 2x for 1x because that team just got to get, has to get rid of them. And that's what he's done an amazing job at. And to kind of to a theme that Luke has brought up time and time again, Chica hasn't had really any issues getting deals done. I know we've talked about, you know, maybe some GMs might not be willing to work with him because he's young or, you know, because of how successful he has in deals. That doesn't seem to be impacting him at all. No, he's been good at, at sort of finding teams that need to make moves or are sort of prone to make questionable moves, and he's taken advantage of it so far. And again, it's been nothing huge, 
but he is he's picked his spots and he has made trades where he's not giving up a lot and he's been able to get exactly what he needs. Re- reallocating the funds to the right part of the roster is a great way to put it. But in years past, it was like they had a house where the roof was caving in, but the lawn looked nice. And he is he sort of changed that. <laughs> did you did you work that one up ahead of time? I've been building it in my mind for about a half hour. There you go. <laughs> Do you guys still wonder with with all the pieces they have now? And I, like I said, I know things would look a little different. Yeah, they'd have one of these players wouldn't be here. But oh do you wonder what this team might look like if they had won the lottery? One of those. The two only years? one and I've said this in the past. The only I guess I should say the only two are I feel like they should have won the McDavid lottery. I know everybody else says Austin Matthews because he was from here, and I get that. But I felt like that was the worst Coyotes team I've ever seen. They deserved the first pick certainly more than Edmonton. And the other one is just the simple fact that if Austin Matthews was born a few days later, or I guess earlier. They'd they would Jack either. They yeah. They yeah. probably have Jack Eichel. Maybe yeah. they'd have Matthews. They'd have one of them. Yeah. So you take out Dylan Strome and add Jack Eichel, or take out Dylan Strome and add Connor McDavid. What does this team look like right now? What are you thinking about you're, the Arizona? Coyotes? You're thinking they're going to win the Pacific Division this year. They have the expectations at that point that the Oilers do. I mean, let's let's just yeah. be honest. The Oilers are only being projected as a Cup contender because they won the lottery. I, I think the the maybe it's, it might take a year or year and a half, but I think if you take McDavid. Drysaddle's there too, but I say aside from David McDavid and Drysaddle, again, those are two huge pieces. The Coyotes are vastly better at almost every other position on the yeah, ice. Yeah, I'm not a. I'm, I'm, Sarah was talking about Edmonton's blue line too, and I, I still think they have issues there. If, if I'm lining up these two blue lines, I'll take Arizona's blue line over Edmonton's yeah. blue line. I would take if you just took McDavid out of the equation for a oh. second, and you put him on somebody on the Eastern Conference, and you just said the Oilers and the Coyotes, who's the better team? I don't even think it's close. The Coyotes don't have Leon Drysaddle. And maybe he's the best player on the ice, maybe Oliver. But it's the Oliver Coyotes, or Drysidal, but yeah, but still, the they, rest the Coyotes of the Coyotes have like Coyotes. nine of the next ten best players on the ice. I mean, the Edmonton is, is good because they won the lottery and because they were smart to draft Drysidal where they did. That's that's the difference. Yeah, so it's 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 the always going to be the what if. You know, what if they got the McDavid? What if the the ping pong balls just fell the way they were logically supposed to, and they got Jack Eichel? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a whole different equation. Or, I mean, with the same record as Winnipeg when the Jets were able to move up and get Line A, what if they got Line A? Yeah, uh, but again, there's the, there's a the butterfly effect element. If they were better last year, is Dave Tippett still here? Is, is, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of things are, that go into yeah, that. I, I was trying to make that point, yeah. Yeah, there, there, there's, there's, a, there's a butterfly effect to it. But, uh, yes, they, could, they, they still need – I'm not convinced that Derek Stepan's going to be that franchise center, but he's a lot better than anybody they've, they've had here in a long, long time. All right, that's going to do it for us for our Coyotes preview. I was going to say something else about McDavid, but we don't need to relive that nightmare anymore. So we are going to move on, wrap this up. We have six teams left to uh, to preview over the next two weeks. And a special one later this week. Yeah, later this week we'll be talking directly to Shane Doan. So that's going to do it for us. For Jamie Eisner and Craig Morgan, I'm Luke Lipinski. Thanks for listening to the Natural Hattrick Podcast.